Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. Amen. You can be seated. Welcome to Horizon West Church. Uh, Thank you, team, for leading us in worship. Um, Man, I don't know where you spent the last uh, several days over Thanksgiving. I know several maybe stayed here. A lot of you did what I did and traveled with your family. We went up to North Carolina for the week and uh, tried to come home on I-95 yesterday. That was a nightmare. Um, we, We had planned to get in at a reasonable hour. Unfortunately, that, that was not the plan that I-95 had, and so uh, we rolled into our driveway at about 1.07 in the morning. So uh, Carmen's already made two deals with you. I'm going to make a third. If I'm not falling asleep while I preach, you're not allowed to fall asleep listening to the sermon. Are we good? Can we agree to those terms? All right, I'm going to hold you to it. Well, the other thing is that now that we are past Thanksgiving, which by the way is a fantastic holiday, when we can just pause and give thanks to God, a little less commercial, a little less marketed, be with family, enjoy the good gifts that God has given, and recognize in a world that's increasingly not doing that, all that we have that is good is a gift from a God who loves us and who cares for us. So don't want to skip too too quickly past that, but now that we are on the other side of Thanksgiving, you know what that means. It's Christmas season, okay? Four weeks from today, it will be Christmas, and so I want to do you a a public service and give you a Christmas preparedness test. How many of you have your Christmas tree up at the house? And y'all are doing pretty good. How many have the outside lights up? Okay, not quite as many. How many of you have at least begun the Christmas shopping? Okay, about the same as the other. How many of you know what month Christmas is in? Okay, I just needed everybody to have a chance. I needed myself to have a chance to put my hand up. We're we're in Christmas season, ready or not, here it comes. And what happens every Christmas season is kind of like this this tug of war between the culture and the church, right? Like, you know, market it, you know, do the music and the Santa Claus and the church is like, no, 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 Jesus is the reason. You might remember a few years back, there was this keep Christ in Christmas, this kind of tug of war. And, And there's this wrestling match over what is Christmas really all about? Is it just getting together with family? Is it the travel? Is it the gifts? Or is it something more? And I want you to know this morning that the meaning of a thing is always found in the message of the thing. I'll give you a couple of examples. If, if you were to try to explain to somebody the importance of American independence, the American freedom, breaking away uh, from, from the tyranny of England, and, and what does that mean? You look at the message. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, namely the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The meaning is found in the message. Here's another one. If you were to explain to somebody who didn't understand the civil rights movement, probably the quickest way to do that is to take them to the speech that Dr. King gave on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial when he said, among other things, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a world where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. If you want to know the meaning of something, look at the message. 
And so what we're going to do today and over the next few weeks is we're going to look at the message of Christmas that came from the angels to a group of shepherds in Luke chapter 2. And each week we're going to pull out different elements or aspects of that message to shed further light on what the meaning of Christmas really is. That will culminate, as Carmen already shared with you, that will culminate on our Christmas Eve service right here in this auditorium, Christmas Eve. It's a Saturday, uh, four o'clock in the afternoon. I want to encourage you not only to circle that on your calendar, but start thinking about who can I invite from my neighborhood, somebody I coach with, go to the gym with, a friend, a family member. We've got invite cards in the back. I want to encourage you to take some of those. Think of three, four, five people that you're going to go before this week ends. I'm going to invite them to Christmas Eve at Horizon West Church. As we drop into Luke chapter 2, before we get there, I want to set the stage for you because you need some context to know why what's happening is happening. And so at this time in world history, we know that Caesar Augustus is the emperor of Rome. He is both the first and pretty widely considered the greatest Caesar that ever uh, led in Rome. In fact, while Caesar Augustus was reigning, the Roman Empire doubled to to the, the size that we think of it, that massive empire that ruled most of the known world. And at this time in Luke chapter 2, what's happening is that he has called for a taxation of every person in his empire, which extends to a very, very far uh, region. And this is how a young couple from Nazareth named Joseph and Mary ended up in a little town called Bethlehem. They went to be taxed. They didn't have e-file, TurboTax wasn't a thing, and so they traveled. And can you imagine Can you imagine an entire empire going on the road to get to where they are from originally? In this room, that would be remarkable, right? Our airports, I mean, I thought I-95 was bad. It would be even worse. Like, we'd be going to Kingston, and we'd be going to, you know, Port-au-Prince, and we'd be going to Rio, and Santo Domingo, and San Juan, and, and L.A., and New York, and, you know, Tennessee. I don't know why I said a state. The rest were cities. But, you know, all the places we're from... It would be nuts, and it was crazy. That's just what it was like. It was crazy. And so I want you to understand that kind of context as we drop into Luke chapter 2, where some very real people are having a real experience, and this is what it looks like. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased." This morning, what I want to do is spend the next 20 minutes or so looking at this very first words that the angel brings to those shepherds. Do not fear or don't be afraid. You may have heard that this is one of, if not the most repeated commands in all of the Bible, which is pretty remarkable. We're like, we think the big ones are like, don't kill, don't do this. The the thing that's repeated the most in scriptures, do not be afraid. It comes first to a man named Abram in Genesis chapter 12 when God shows up and says, Abraham, don't be afraid. 
That's the first book of the Bible. Then we see it in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, where the angel tells a church who's experiencing persecution and hardship, and he says, don't be afraid. And some 300-something times in between those two places, the same refrain over and over, do not fear. Do not be afraid. Now, there's a couple aspects to this. One is obvious. If you're just like doing your thing out in the fields, caring for sheep, you know, just normal stuff that we all do. But if you're, if you're working, whatever your day job is, and all of a sudden there's an angel talking to you, and then they're surrounded by a multitude of the heavenly hosts, it's kind of scary, right? None of us are like, yeah, that's not a big deal. I hap- that happens to me all the time. Like, well, that would be weird. But it is also more than that. There's a reason why it seems whenever a heavenly messenger comes to earth, his first words are, don't be afraid. Don't fear. And it's almost like God himself understands that the world we live in is broken and fractured and fragmented, and he gets the fact that our natural instinct is to be afraid. When I was younger, I was one of these kids that had kind of a, a, a fearful disposition, right? Some of you can relate with that from your younger years. Some of you are raising children. They're just fearful for whatever reason. For me, you know, scared of the dark, you know, scared that somebody was going to break in our house. So I always listened to make sure my dad locked the door and I may sometimes go and follow behind him and check, you know, and, and, and I wasn't afraid of monsters under the bed because I was a church kid. I was pretty sure there were demons in my room. It was even worse. Like it was a terrifying way to, to live. And so, but just fear. And it was just like, if there was something I could be afraid of, I found a way to do that. As I got older, those kind of existential fears kind of dwindled. I became a little more secure in the world that I lived in. But then circumstantial fear began to take over. Now I'm a husband and a, and a dad, and now I've got a mortgage, and I've got debts, and now I've got expectations at my job, and now I've got people relying on me. And, and, and anxiety kind of fear just took the place of the other fears. Fearful. And some of you relate. Whatever that fear is, the concerns about the future, anxieties about the present, or whatever it might be, but you go, I relate with fear. And this is what I want you to know, and I want you to hear this clearly. God is gracious with our fears and anxieties, but he also wants us to have victory over them. He's gracious. He understands. He created us. He knows the world that we live in, and yet he wants us to have victory over the fear and anxiety in our lives. So what we're going to do is, is look at three reasons that people fear, which were both present at the first Christmas and still remain present some 2,000 years later. And then I want to close with just a, a brief walkthrough of why we really don't have to fear anymore. First reason people fear is because God is unknown. Uh, if you were to look at the Bible, the Old Testament, where we see the revelation of God, what you find is that God did reveal himself to a few, people like Abraham and Moses and David, but he remained mostly hidden to the rest. In fact, in philosophical terms, this, this idea of the hiddenness of God has been debated for centuries. One famous philosopher, an atheist named Bertrand Russell, was asked one time, Mr. Russell, if when you die, you end up standing before God, what will you say? And this atheist responded in this way. He said, I would say to him, sir, why did you take such great pains to hide yourself? See, in the minds of atheists, if if God exists, he's hidden, he's unknown or maybe even unknowable. 
One of the fastest growing uh, belief systems is agnosticism. Not only that, that they don't know God personally, but that, that he's not able to, if he exists, he's not able to be known. There's no way to be certain. Even when you cross over and talk to people who are religious, people who are theists, you find that most, if not all, world religions stress the transcendence of God, the, the unknowableness of God. He's out there somewhere. It's like an old song that was out in like the early 90s. God is watching us from a distance. That's what the religions teach us, right? Be careful, little eyes, what you see. The Father up above is looking down with some blend of judgment and love, right? I never really understood that, but he's distant. So, so even among religious people, in fact, the Apostle Paul, you remember this guy in, in, in Athens in Acts chapter 17, he encounters some very religious people. These are Greeks. The Greeks were theists. They believed in the gods. But one of their altars, interestingly, was inscribed like this. It said, to the unknown God. And Paul used that to explain to them the God that can be known. But, but I think Paul, one of the reasons he was able to be gracious with the people of Athens, the reason he was able to meet them where they were, is that Paul himself lived most of his life without knowing God. Because before he was Paul the Apostle, the man that took Christianity to all regions of the world and wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, he was a Jewish man named Saul who was a Pharisee and religious leader. And on the road to Damascus one day, a voice from heaven says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And do you remember what Saul's answer is? Who are you, Lord? Remarkable. Utterly remarkable because there wasn't really anyone in the, in the known world that knew more about God than Saul. And yet when God shows up, he recognized, I actually don't know you at all. If you were to ask me about one of the people that I most respect in the world, a historical figure, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I could tell you a lot of facts about him. I've read a, read a lot of books about him. I've done papers about Dr. King for, for school. I know I could tell you he grew up in Atlanta, that he went to Morehouse College and then Crozer Seminary and then got a doctorate from Boston University and then in his 20s was called to be the pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery right around the time the Montgomery bus boycott was becoming a thing and the, and the civil rights movement was birthed. I can rattle off all of that, but I never met Dr. King. Don't have any intimate acquaintance with him. Don't know what his personality was really like. If you were to ask me, on the other hand, about my children, man, I would get real comfortable, and you would need to get real comfortable, because I can talk about my kids. Tell you their personalities, their quirks, their sense of humor, what they're good at, what makes them afraid. I, I know my children. I don't just know about them. And there are some of you in the room that, that in spite of the fact that you're in a church, and maybe you've been in a lot of churches or even grew up in one, you would be honest enough to say, I know a lot about God, but I'm not sure I have a personal relationship with him. It's almost as if, if God exists, he has no personal impact on my life. I have no personal experience with him. And I think this generates a great deal of fear in our hearts. And the fear is this, I am on my own. One of my first bosses used to have this mantra he would drill into our heads. He would say, if it is to be, it is up to me. And that may be a great way to approach your, your work in a sense, meaning I'm not relying on other people to finish the job or to do my job, but it's a terrible way to live. 
That if it is to be, it is up to me. Everything is on my shoulders. And so we fear the threats of war and disease and government instability. We are anxious about the needs of our family in an uncertain economy. We're worried about the future our children are going to face because we don't know God. We have no lived experience of him in our lives. All of these concerns and more were present at the first Christmas. These were not religious people to whom the angels showed up. These were people who had no real experience of God up to that point. There's another reason to fear. We fear because our debts are unpaid. There's a financial component to this. Most of us carry some debt in our lives, right? Hopefully Dave Ramsey's not watching. I would be very surprised if he was. But we carry debt like a car, a house, maybe a credit card, a school loan. Nikki and I spent years paying off our student loans, and then apparently you don't have to do that anymore, but that's another story. Um, so, you know, we, we carry debts, and, we, and, and financial pressure generates a lot of fear, right? In fact, most of the things that create stress come back to finances. My, my family's moving, and there's a lot of costs involved. We're going through a health thing, and that's bad, but also we owe a lot of money. We're going through a job instability or changing jobs. We're not sure. Money is a very real source of fear, and that was true for these first people of Christmas. I mean, the shepherds were not high on the socioeconomic ladder. Like, God didn't go, I'm going to go to the the white-collar folks, and I'm going to give them this message. He goes to men who are just grinding it out day after day to earn a living. And Joseph and Mary are not much better off. In fact, if you didn't know this, Joseph and Mary were poor, And I know that because when they go to make a a sacrifice in Jerusalem to consecrate Jesus as a baby, it says they bring two turtle doves. You know, why does that matter? Because in the law, the the accommodation that was made was that if you couldn't afford a lamb, you could bring two pigeons or two turtle doves. So Joseph and Mary, some of you remember this when you were like newly married or young, like they had nothing they, they were scraping by, and now some Caesar that they don't know and have any affinity for at all has said, you've got to travel to some distant place, and you've got to be taxed when you're already struggling financially. We have financial obligations that create fear. We also have relational obligations. Um, I am one of seven children. I saw most of them and their spouses and kids this past week. It was incredible. But I've got a whole nother set of family with step family and cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents and I'm on a softball team. I, I go to the gym. I'm pastoring a church. I've got great neighbors that I love. Like I've got friends. I'm in a small group. I'm in a men's Bible study. Like all of that is awesome. But sometimes the, the relational obligations are like, wow, I don't know if I can manage this. <laughs> I've got so many, I've got as many texts as you can pin on your iPhone pinned. They won't let me pin anymore. Like I've got emails flagged. I've got things I've got to return and do, and I, and I feel some pressure a lot. I'm not doing enough to make the relationships in my life work. Or maybe it's more than that even. It's religious obligations. It's this sense that you've got to perform for God or he's not going to be happy for you. This, again, is how most religions in the world work. And so we're encouraged to pray X number of times every day or attend church or mass or synagogue more regularly or, or give more of our money as some sort of a penance to satisfy God or the gods. And this, again, is the climate into which Jesus was born. 
the religious culture of first century Israel was if we don't do enough, we are not enough. And this was put on people by the religious leaders themselves, the Pharisees. In fact, at one point, Jesus said to them, you bind up huge weights for people to carry and you don't lift a single finger to help them. People were stressed financially, relationally, even religiously. And here's the fear that comes if that's you and that's where you're living. The fear is I can never do enough or I can never be enough. If you're living with that narrative in your head, maybe that's because you grew up in a home or a church culture that said that, whether directly or indirectly, you got to perform, you got to do more. Some of you are just Enneagram ones and that's just you. You just live with that. Or, or maybe you're the oldest child in your family and in your culture, that's an expectation, whatever it might be. That can rob the joy of our lives when we're weighed down with the fear of unpaid debts, unmet obligations. And third, we fear because our lives are unmanageable. We sing a song every year at Christmas. You've probably already heard it, and we will sing it at the Christmas Eve service because it's a beautiful song. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. We love that song. It's a great song. It is not, however, true to the original Christmas story. That that was not a calm situation. That that was not a silent uh, environment. Like, Like that was chaos. When you drop into the story itself, you go, this is utter mayhem. And all of those people, the shepherds, Joseph, Mary, everyone is experiencing lives that are bordering on, if not completely, unmanageable. I mean, consider what Joseph and Mary are experiencing. In addition to all of that financial stress and hardship and having to now travel at nine months pregnant to pay taxes to a wicked emperor, they're also dealing with the fact that back home, there's some chatter about how this pregnancy occurred. Because Mary and Joseph are not yet married and their story's not really adding up for people. And so they're dealing with a a tarnished reputation and all of the implications of that. Joseph and Mary and the cast of the first Christmas was bordering on unmanageable lives. And if that's where you are today, the fear that comes with that is I'm not going to make it. Now that can mean a lot of different things. I'm not going to make it in my marriage. I'm not going to make it with these kids, we're not gonna make it financially, I'm not gonna make it to retirement, whatever it might be, but that sense that that the, the life that I'm living has become unmanageable, I can't sustain the pace at which I'm going. And if that's you, I wanna just speak grace over you. There was a point in 2016 where I remember telling Nikki, I feel like I'm playing a game that is not winnable. It wasn't anything against her, we were struggling. We didn't want to get divorced. We didn't want to tank things. We didn't want to blow everything up. But I just knew that the, the pace I was living at, I couldn't keep living at. We needed help, and, and we ended up reaching out. Because what I was recognizing just in my bones and muscles and, and all of that before I recognized it in my mind was, I can't keep doing this. This is hard. This is not sustainable. And so we reached out for help. One of the great resources that we have at Horizon West Church is a ministry called Celebrate Recovery. And it exists exactly for people who go, hey, I'm throwing the flag 
Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a compulsive behavior. Uh, maybe it's, it's anxious thoughts. Maybe it's uh, codependence. It can be any number of things that bring us to a place of going, I need something I don't currently have. Celebrate Recovery is a ministry of this church that meets every Monday night for people like you. In fact, in the 12 steps of Celebrate Recovery's uh, steps process, they say this, we admitted, this is the first one, we admitted we were powerless over our addictions and compulsive behaviors, that our lives had become unmanageable. And for some of you, just simply saying that to someone, maybe it's your spouse first, maybe it's a friend or a trusted person in your life, but you need to acknowledge that your life has become unmanageable. The truth is that for all of the enjoyment that we have of Christmas and the celebration around it, the Christmas season is one of the hardest that exists for many people. Because of a loss, because of an addiction, because of the pressures of finances, because of the end of the year expectations, Christmas can become a source of the pain rather than the solution for it. And again, all of the people in the first Christmas were feeling that. They were experiencing that. And so that message from the angel, don't be afraid, was spoken to people who were afraid. They were afraid that they were on their own, afraid they weren't going to make it, afraid that life had become unmanageable. So here's where I want to go, and I kind of want to turn the page as we move toward closing this message. I want to ask a simple question. How did Christmas or the coming of Jesus change the game? Like, it's one thing to recognize that there are things that cause fear and even to relate with that and to acknowledge that that we have some of those same fears. I want to really quickly give you three reasons that because of Christmas and because Jesus came, you don't need to fear anymore. Number one, through Jesus, God is known. In Matthew 1.23, when the angel came to Joseph, he said, Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Which means that if you want to know what God is like, you don't have to look any further than Jesus as he's portrayed in the New Testament. That is what God is like. In fact, the writer of Hebrews takes it even further. He says, the Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. So it's because of Jesus that we know that God is a God of love and compassion and healing and restoration. They didn't know that fully on the first Christmas, but through Jesus, we can know God and we can know what God is like. Secondly, we don't have to fear because of Jesus, our debt is paid. That same angel that was speaking to Joseph and telling him that people would call him Emmanuel says, but you're going to call him something else. You're going to name him Jesus, because he's going to save his people from their sins. That name, Yeshua or Joshua from the Old Testament that we translate as Jesus, it literally means he saves. The number one reason that we have Christmas is not for marketing purposes. It's not so we can travel. It's not so we can gather with family. It's because humanity had a problem it could not solve. We were weighed down with the debt and burden of our own sin. And there is no burden that is heavier than that. I mean, if you were to be honest and think about your own life, how much devastation has your sin brought into your own life, into the lives of people around you? How much has the devastation of sins of other people impacted you? Sin is a weight we were never meant to carry. In The Pilgrim's Progress, a great allegory of the Christian life, 
the traveler, the journeyman Christian comes finally to the cross and the weight, the pack that he's been carrying on his shoulders is immediately released and tumbles down the hill. And it's a picture of the kind of freedom that Jesus came to give us. He paid our debts. When Jesus was on the cross and people were mocking him and and calling out to him and weeping for him and all of this, he says over the shouts of the crowd, these words, it is finished. Some of you have had a long-term debt like a student loan or a car or, or maybe even a mortgage note. And you know, man, when you stroke that last check or you clicked that last button, the feeling of we did it. We got that thing off our backs. We're free. When Jesus says it is finished, he says, I've done the work. I've made the final payment. Third and finally, in Jesus, life becomes manageable. Carmen, can you give me some water? Y'all can talk amongst yourself for a second. This is what one o'clock in the morning will do to me. In Jesus, life becomes manageable. And I would go further than that, not just manageable. Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and have it what? To the fullest, more abundantly. I shared earlier that most of my fears today are circumstantial, not existential. And what I have had to do and what I want to encourage you to do, get out of your mind this notion that the abundant life is something that will happen once your circumstances get sorted out. It is not the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Jesus said to people, I've come that you may have abundant life here and now. He never promised this life was going to be easy. In fact, he said to his disciples, in this world you're going to have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Jesus wants you to have a life that's not only manageable, but abundant as you learn to bring Jesus in to all the places of your life, as you learn to surrender those areas of fear those areas of struggle, and let Jesus be Lord. Christmas, as we know, is a season that reminds us of all of the good things that exist, joy and giving and hope and peace. I want you to add one more to that list of good things that you don't probably naturally associate with Christmas. Because of Christmas, because Jesus came, you can be fearless. You do not have to fear the things that others fear. Jesus came to bring God close to us, The Holy Spirit lives in us by faith in the work of Christ, and we can live fearless this Christmas. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for sustaining me. And God, thank you for the work that you do in each of our lives. We sang it a moment ago, even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it, you're working. While we sleep, you work. While we worry, you work. God, while we live our lives day in, day out, moment by moment, God, you are working all things for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And so, God, we just surrender this morning. We we ask that you would help us to be reminded of what Christmas is all about, the one who came to overcome fear, to set us free. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.